Well, welcome back to our study of the life of David. It's good to see everybody, those of you joining us on the live stream. We took a little detour last week to talk about the election. Now that we've settled all of that, solved all of our country's political problems, we can get back, we can get back to the life of David. So we have a couple more lessons before we'll take a week off for the Thanksgiving break. And so we will, in the next two lessons, we'll kind of finish our story of David. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 14 in this lesson. And uh, it's, it's a really pivotal time in the life of David. But let me pray for us and we'll dive right into the lesson. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us. Thank you for your grace in difficult times and your grace in times of joy. And we thank you for your presence with us. I do pray for everyone in the sound of my voice that you would be near us in our time of need. Father, that you would give us courage and faith to trust you even when we do not see the outcome of events. I do pray for our nation. I pray for our leaders that you would turn their hearts toward you. I do believe you are sovereign, even above all the rulers and kings of the world that have ever lived and will ever live. I pray, Lord, that your will would be done, and I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us to be lights in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know the uh, text your questions into this number. It's also on the handout. Uh, there are also, by the way, discussion questions on the handout. We don't do them in this class, but there are people that use this uh, around the country, around the world for uh, small group studies, so I always put some questions. I can't guarantee they're good questions, but I put some discussion questions if you want to use those as kind of follow-up to dive a little more into the text. So uh, text your questions in to that. So where are we in the life of David? So David, if you remember, I'll do a brief recap. So David is anointed probably in his teens by Samuel to be king, even though Saul is currently the king, and he has the battle, of course, with uh, Goliath and defeats him, and Saul brings him in, and then Saul becomes jealous. And David spends most of the decade, probably of his 20s, hiding from Saul, running from Saul. And he doesn't kill Saul. He wants to be honoring God. He said, look, God promised me this, but I know the right thing is not to kill Saul. And so he spends his 20s, basically, uh, wandering away from Saul. When he's 30 years old, Saul dies, the Philistines kill Saul, David becomes king when he's about 30 years old, when he's 30 years old. And so he becomes king in the southern part of the country and then eventually in the whole nation. Well, he becomes king, but he has a lot of work to do. So I'm going to show you a map that is uh, kind of hypothetical in, in a sense. And what I mean by that is this map in green is the kingdom of David. That's going to be the kingdom of David in this lesson, not the kingdom of David when he took over, because really the Israelites didn't have much territory at all. The Philistines had killed Saul, and they'd run a lot of the Israelites even out of the promised land. And so he had a huge chore, but he began, God was with him. And he believed that God would be with him. That he believed God when God said, you will prevail against your enemies, even though they're bigger and stronger and more numerous than you are. And so David does. David spends about 10 years basically fighting and conquering. He conquers Jerusalem and makes that his capital city. He unites the 12 tribes together. This is kind of the high point, the golden era, when God's promises 
come true because they have a king that actually believes and trusts God. So as our story opens in this lesson in 2 Samuel 10, we're almost 10 years in. So David's about 40 years old probably, and he's got a couple more battles left. He is going to fight the Ammonites. So he's defeated the Philistines, and they are paying him tribute. So I'm marking that out. He's also defeated the Amalekites and the Edomites over this time period, and they pay tribute to Israel. In other words, they're vassal states. And what I mean by that is they have treaties of peace. Think about it uh, like the United Arab Emirates and Israel. There are now treaties with them, but think about it in the sense that one is stronger than the other. And so as opposed to a, a, a treaty of equals here, Israel's the stronger country, and he says, look, we're not going to attack you, we're not going to kill you, but you can't attack us, and in fact, you're going to pay some taxes to us, and we'll defend this area. So they don't rule it. It's not like they put their own governor in or their own king. They didn't depose the kings. They just said, look, you're going to be subservient. We're just not going to let you attack us anymore. So Israel is not particularly imperialistic. By the way, this is true of all the history of Israel. Israel wants the land that God promised them. I'm talking about ancient Israel. So when you see that area in green, that's pretty much the area that God promised Abraham, literally 1,000 years before David. And when they conquered that, they stopped. I mean, they, they're not trying to conquer Assyria in the north. They're not trying to conquer Egypt. They wanted the land that they were given. But they don't have it all. And so David goes to war against the Ammonites. And I'm going to show you that as our text, our story opens. He's finishing out this first decade of being king. And the Syrians, which in the Old Testament are called Arameans, same thing. They're just modern day, it would be Syrians. The Arameans and this, I want to show you on the map before we get into the text, this kingdom of Zobah, these people are related to the Arameans. And so all of these people have really designs on Israel. And so as our story opens, David's going to finish out his first decade as king by pacifying this entire area. So that's where we're going, and here's how it opens in 2 Samuel 10. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, so, and his son, Hanun, succeeded him as king. And David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. His dad's name was Nahash. Nahash, by the way, had been very friendly with David uh, during the time period when David was running away from Saul. And so he says, I'm going to see if I can do him a kindness. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy concerning his father. Now, when David's men came to the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, do you think David is really honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? In other words, they distrust his motives. You know, they see the world the way they would act, and that is, I bet he's here to see, can I conquer this kid? And is, is he strong? And can, can we defeat them? He says, hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun believed them, and he sees David's men shaved off half of each man's beard, cut their garments in the middle at the buttocks. So this is kind of like ancient trash talk. So a beard was a sign of manhood, and if they'd shaved his beard off, that would be bad, but shaving half their beard off, that's like taunting. Shaving and cutting off their, their garments at the buttocks, they wore these tunics, 
So you could just uh, leave it to your imaginations. He basically sent them away half naked. And that was just real trash talk like, this is what I think of your sympathy and this is what I think of your delegation. Okay, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, that just ticks people off. So when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, okay, that's an ancient euphemism for David was really mad when he found out what he'd done to his emissaries, right? When they... Uh, found out that they'd become a stench in David's nostrils. They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers uh, from Bethrehob, Bethzabah. Anyway, and as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. So what they realized is, oh, David's ticked off, and so let's get some mercenaries. So they hire some Syrian mercenaries and get an army together saying, I think we're going to have to do this thing. So on hearing this, David sent Joab. Remember, Joab is the general of his army with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate. Now, they outnumber the Israelites, probably. While the Arameans of Zabah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So, for those of you, I'll show you a map in a second, what's happening here, but basically, militarily, they take all the uh, Ammonite army and they put them in one spot and they take all of the Arameans, put them in another spot, and now they're going to use a kind of a pincer movement. And so that forces Joab to split his forces. Not a good thing. And so when Joab saw, verse 9, that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, deployed them against Ammon. And he said, look, if the Arameans are too strong for me, you come help me. The Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come to rescue you. Be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced toward the Arameans, and they fled before him. Okay, this is totally off the subject, but this is so interesting. So most battles in ancient times uh, didn't really end in battle. And that's because when you're standing there and you're a conscript and some guy's coming at you with an axe or a sword and you think, how much do I really believe in my cause? I mean, there were indeed battles in those times, but the Arameans were hired and they've probably already been paid. And mercenaries are notoriously unloyal, right? And so Joab's men are not intimidated they just come out like Braveheart here. You know, I mean, they're yelling. They're like, hey, we believe our God is going to do it. And the people that believe they're going to win have a huge advantage. And so the Arameans see that and they go, these are crazy Israelites. I don't think I want to risk my life today. They take off. So then the Ammonites realize this is not good. So when the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, uh, so sorry, let me go back uh, before this. So he said, then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans. They fled. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they also ran away and went inside their city. And so Joab came back and said, we routed these guys. So after the Arameans saw they'd been routed, they regrouped. And Hadadetzer uh, had Arameans brought from beyond the river. In other words, they go, this is humiliating. And so they basically get more guys and say, we've got to go get our honor back. When David was told of this, he gathered all of Israel, crossed the Jordan, and the Arameans formed their battle line to meet David, and he fought against them. This is really smart. 
And so he defeats them all, and they made peace with him, and the Arameans were afraid to come help the Ammonites anymore. So let me show you what's happening. This is really interesting. So Joab, I mean, I realize it's interesting to some of you, so we'll, we won't spend a ton of time here. Basically, Joab goes out, fights against Ammon. He's got some mercenaries from here. They all flee, and they think, we're done. But then you get tons of reinforcements start coming in. When David hears this, he's smart enough, and he says, we're going to go meet them before they can regroup. And so the second battle happens up here. And so he never lets them get their full force against him. Why am I telling you that? I just want you to know that there's a lot of military strategy in the Bible. So if you like that kind of thing, these battles are really interesting. The other thing, if you don't like the battles, just know this. David really was a good military commander. You're going to see David's got the soul of a poet. And we're going to look at one of his famous, famous psalms in this lesson. But David was also really a good military strategist. He was a great king of Israel because he was able to be smart and defeat the enemies of Israel. And so, as this part of our story ends, 10 years in, David really does control all of this area. And so the Israelites aren't living in all of that area, but they have peace all around them. And so David settles in and says, I have no more enemies trying to attack Israel. I've given the Israelites their land. They're peaceful. They're farming. The nations around us, we have treaties with them. Uh, we've made sure they can't rearm and come after us. And so there's this time of peace and prosperity in Israel. And so what we're about to head into is the most difficult season of David's life. And so I want to make this one point before we get into it. If you think about it, ever since he was about 20 years old, David has been through trials, running from Saul, leaning on God, writing all those psalms about, oh, God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, kind of a thing. Then through all of his 30s, he's fighting battle after battle, trusting God to help him overcome even stronger nations all around them. And now he's done. In other words, God has blessed them with everything that he wanted. And so during David's time of trial, getting here, for that 20 years or so that he's doing that, David is really faithful. But now that David has prosperity, you're going to find that David has a lot harder time being faithful in times of prosperity than he ever did in times of difficulty. And I really feel like for us as 21st century Christians living in the most uh, serious, just in every way, the richest nation that ever existed with all of our problems and all of our trials. I mean, I get upset sometimes when my Wi-Fi goes out. I mean, they're, try they're suffering. We suffer, people, okay? But my point is, is that relatively speaking, we live in prosperity that David couldn't even have dreamed of. And I do wonder if we don't have the same difficulty that David had, that prosperity is sometimes far, far more difficult to deal with than hardship. And I think God obviously knows this, and he's very wise. And if you look at the New Testament, we don't talk about this very much, but we should, because the New Testament has a very robust theology of suffering. Christians think differently about suffering, and I mean suffering as in health problems 
relational trials in your life, uh, losing your job. I mean, suffering can just be those difficulties of life that you, that you feel like things are stacked against you. A lot of things fit that category. The New Testament has a, has a very specific idea about suffering, that suffering is purposeful. It's not necessarily something to be avoided. Now, the scriptures doesn't say you should go try to suffer. You should be like those monks in the Middle Ages that you know, hit themselves with whips so that they would suffer and therefore be holier. Well, that's not what the New Testament is saying, but it is saying that when you encounter various trials, this is James chapter 1, you know, rejoice when you encounter these trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, Christian growth of faith requires some suffering. In fact, I would argue the New Testament probably teaches as strongly as anything that your faith cannot be fully formed in prosperity alone. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian if you're prosperous. That's not my point. My point is you're not going to have a fully developed faith without some trials in our lives to refine our faith. Well, David found himself in a time of prosperity, and I think he fell into some of the same traps that we too are tempted to fall into. So let's see what happens. David's about 40 years old. Things are going well. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, and that's true, every spring kings would go to war. Why? Because the weather's, seriously, the weather's good in the spring, and if you're invading somebody, there's stuff to eat. You know, there are apples on the trees, there are olives on the tree, you know, that's why they went in the spring. And so it was typical that if you had enemies, you would campaign every year. Well, David doesn't have to campaign because he's defeated his enemies, and now he sends Joab and the army off to go do cleanup work, mop-up work. You know, go put down a little rebellion over here and go deal with some issues over there. And so David sent Joab out with all the, the Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, a city. And David, though, remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around. He'd taken a nap and walked around on the roof of the palace because it was cool in the later part of the day. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept. By the way, notice how staccato this is. This is like the biggest bad news, the biggest sin that David's going to do in his life. But notice how the scripture is just doesn't mince words. It's like boom, 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 boom. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Well, that's like two sentences that defines one of the defining points in David's life. So let's break it down just a little bit. So what is David doing? First of all, one lesson I want to give you here is David is not where he's supposed to be. And some of you are nodding thinking, yes, that leads to bad things. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, think back to your teenage years if you can't think of anything now, have you ever been in a situation where you kind of wake up and you go, I don't really think I should be here, right? You know, bad things are going on, and yeah, I got myself here, but I no longer want to be in this situation. And so, you know, being where you aren't supposed to be. And David, then add that to boredom. David is bored. 
David is powerful. David has no challenges. He has no hills to climb. David is bored looking around, not where he's supposed to be, not doing what he's supposed to do. And it seems to me like that's still true for us. Too much leisure, too much control, too much power is just like, it's a snare for us sometimes. It's like we look around. Now, David sleeps with Bathsheba, and I'm going to get ahead of the story a little bit, but you have to know that David has a bunch of wives. That's its own problem, but that's another story for another time. David has plenty of women he could sleep with, but David wants what he doesn't have. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Amazon.com. I mean, that's the whole basis for American civilization. We live in a consumer culture. What do you need in a consumer culture? You must convince your customers that they need something that they don't have. We live constantly discontented. Everything around you in America, capitalism has done some great things for the world, but one of the things capitalism does is it tries to convince you your life isn't really as good as you think it is. You know what you really need? You need the new and improved, you know, Popeil pocket fisherman. You know, I mean, whatever it may be. Yeah, you need the newest, latest, greatest product. Well, we have this tendency in us to want something we don't have. And so what David does here is, and God's going to say this to him, God's going to say, I would have given you anything you wanted. I've, I've given you your heart's desire. I mean, I fulfilled all the promises that I made to you. What, why did you have to go after something else? But what David is doing here is he's kind of recapitulating the sin of Adam. Think about Adam and Eve, and I want you to think about it in this perspective because I want us to identify with it. I don't know if you can identify with David. I hope you don't identify with this story, but my point is you can probably identify with the idea of, yeah, I do am discontent. I do want things that I don't have. But Adam and Eve had the same thing. Think about it. You have everything in the world. You own it all. You are in the Garden of Eden. You get to talk to God. You can eat anything you want. There's just one tree that you're not supposed to eat from. Now go. Go do whitewater rafting. Go ski. Go do zip lining. You know what? I mean, it's the whole world is yours. And what do they want? The one thing that they don't have. And that's what David did. And you know what? That's us. I mean... I'm not saying to you that we're all necessarily sinners like that. I'm just saying that we, too, are susceptible to that. And that gets worse when you're prosperous. You know, I really, when I was poor, uh, in the days when I was poor, you know, growing up, I probably still wanted stuff, but it wasn't much of a temptation because I didn't have any money to get it, right? I couldn't get, couldn't have it. So I may have, the, the sin nature, you know, fallen man was still inside me, but I couldn't act on it. Then you get prosperous, Hence, David, and you realize, oh, now you can act on it. And that's when you find out what's really there. And so this is what happened. Second point I want to make, I want to talk about control for a minute. So think about this story. David is walking on his roof. His army's out mopping up his enemies. He's master of everything he surveys. He's king. He's got everything he wants. And all it takes is Two little words in Hebrew, three little words in English to shatter his world. I am pregnant. And he goes, uh-oh. Because her husband, Uriah, is one of, by the way, one of David's mighty men. You're going to find that out later in 2 Samuel. He's one of his champion soldiers, valiant, loyal, brave. He's out fighting. 
And David's like, this is awkward. And so David realizes, you think you're in control of the whole world, but you aren't even in control of this situation. And that brings about a really interesting point that I think is, in, is important to us. Yes, this is a lion tamer. This is us and sin. Just when you think things, you have it under control, it goes wild and bites your head off. In other words, sin is like a wild lion. No matter how much you think you've tamed it, no matter how much you think you've domesticated it, sooner or later, that lion is going to take your head off. And that's what happened to David. David thinks, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want to. I can control the sin in my life. And all it took were those little words to make him realize, actually, I'm not in control of this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I just want to urge us, if you're nurturing anything, the New Testament is brutal about this. Remember Jesus in John 15 talks about God will prune the sin out of your life. That's, that's painful. He's going to snip out the sin. The New Testament talks about dying to your sinful nature. That old self has to die. It talks about the idea of put to death sin in your life. It doesn't say tame the sin in your life, tolerate the sin in your life. You know, that here's your little sin, it's domesticated sin. I water it twice a day, it grows, but I trim it. I've got it under control. The New Testament, the Bible in general, understand sin is something you cannot tame. And what's going to happen to David is his continual, I want you to think about every step that happens from this point on, is David trying to tame this lion that he has tolerated in his life. Okay? So, so David decides, well, this is awkward. I need to cover it up. So now he's taken one more step. He's going to tell a bunch of lies. And so he thinks, I'll get Uriah back here. Uriah sleeps with her. We'll say the child is his. Everybody moves on down the road, and I keep this sin under control. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came, David asked how he was, how the soldiers were, how the war is going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which means, long story, but it's a euphemism for get ready for bed, so go sleep with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, sent a bottle of champagne and some chocolates. And so Uriah slept, though, at the entrance to the palace with all of David's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told, Uriah didn't go home. He said, haven't you just come from a long way? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, and this makes it even worse, because Uriah is so noble. He said, the ark and Israel and Judah are sleeping in tents. And my master Joab and all my comrades are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing till this war is over. Then David said, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Do you see how this gets worse and worse as David tries to control this sin? And he just can't tame it, can he? And it just keeps drawing him further and further into this behavior. And so David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah is a loyal, noble, valiant individual. And so David 
in desperation now, has to go even farther. You know that old saying that sin will take you places you didn't want to go, make you stay longer than you wanted to stay? Well, that's what's happening right now. It started out with a little whim, and then it's, oh my gosh, she's pregnant. Well, get her husband here. Oh my gosh, he's too noble to go do this. Oh, now what? Now, if you had just come to David, and this, you guys probably, surely you guys have been in this situation. I've been in this situation more than once, where if you'd said to David before this started, do you think it would be, can you imagine any circumstance where you would have one of your loyal soldiers killed, that you would basically murder him? You'd go, of course not. But step by step, that's where we are. And so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this is about as low as you can go. He sends this note with Uriah. Uriah doesn't know what's in the note, but he's delivering his own death warrant. This is about as despicable as you can get. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king is going to be angry. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Uh, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw a millstone and he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? So what's going to happen is Joab makes a bad military move. He gets too close. And so consequently, he loses some people that David knows. They die. David's angry because he goes, this is terrible generalship. You, that, that's just horrible leadership. These guys died for nothing. All right, so Joab says, he's going to be ticked because I screwed up. I made a mistake here. He says, so if he gets mad and he asks you this, then just say this, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had told him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, came out against us. We drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants, and some of the king's men died. And what this means is some of your relatives died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David told the messenger, tell Joab this, don't worry about it. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead. By the way, she's never named in this. I'll tell you about that in a second. She mourned for him, and after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done, uh, the NIV says, displeased the Lord, literally. But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, David, this, this idea of trying to tame this sin, trying to cover up this sin now leads to murder and death and deception. I mean, this story goes from one of boredom and prosperity and lust, and it gets worse than David could even have imagined. You notice the relationship here between David and Joab? Because I want to talk about the implications of sin. One of the things you see that's true about sin in all of the Bible, but especially in this story, is sin is a downward spiral. 
Sin is never a neutral thing. This is why God hates sin, because it destroys his children. Sin is not a neutral thing. It's not like, a, oh, I sinned, oh well, I'll get back on track and off we'll go. Sin left on its own always gets worse. It's always a downward spiral. I want you to think about the history of humanity. All the way from Genesis 1 in the garden, mankind sins, Adam and Eve rebel against God, and six chapters later, what happens? The flood, all of humanity has fallen into sin. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so the, by nature, sin tends to grow. It's like a cancer, if you will, that, that by itself, it never gets better. By itself, it never stays the same. It always gets worse. This story is so illustrative. You can't tame sin, and you can't even keep it level. And that's why the Bible talks so vehemently about Get rid of sin in your life while it's small because it will take you places you don't want to go. One of the things, the implications of this story that's even worse is the relationship between David and Joab. Now, Joab and David have a weird relationship, kind of a love-hate thing. If you remember, David, when he's trying to unite the tribes, one of our previous lessons, takes the general that's fighting against him and he makes a treaty and says, look, I'm going to unify this. Joab doesn't like that. Abner is the name of the other general because Abner had killed Joab's brother in battle. And so Joab calls Abner under a truce and then kills him, murders him. When David finds out, he goes, I want no part of that. But he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't demote Joab or anything. And so the relationship here is David has a lot of moral superiority. What happens here? David completely loses any moral credibility that he has with Joab. He's now enlisted Joab into his sin, and Joab is complicit in it. And Joab, I'm not saying Joab is blackmailing him, but if you watch the way Joab acts from this point on, his wilder, more violent impulses are no longer restrained because he no longer respects David. So some of the things that are even worse than this that are going to happen in David's life come from this event where he loses his moral authority because he's given into this sin. Sin not only destroyed Uriah the Hittite, it not only is going to destroy the, this child, but it also is going to be, this sin is going to just ripple out and destroy a lot of people. And we'll see that as the story goes on, that sin is always a downward spiral and sin always creeps out. Well, what happens? And this is the second part of one of the greatest stories in the Bible. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So you get a messenger of death from David to Joab, sending Uriah to his death. Now God sends a messenger. Nathan is a prophet. So think of Nathan as kind of like a cross between a preacher and a missionary kind of a guy, but he's basically someone who just speaks God's words, and he preaches, and he tells, you know, he encourages people, follow the law, do the things that are right. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when, and when Nathan came to David, he said, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought. He raised it, grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to see the rich man, but the rich man didn't take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Well, David was furious, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Uh, that's certainly true. I mean, it's an in, a very, extremely unjust thing, right? This is, this is just unheard of. The man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. That's what the law of Moses required because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you Saul's palace and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the kingship over all of Israel and Judah. And if this was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So, I don't know about you, but my respect level for Nathan is way up here. Because think about this situation. You're going to go see David. He already lied about sleeping with her. He already tried to deceive Uriah the Hittite. When that didn't work, he had him murdered, right? And Nathan goes to him to confront him and say, God says, you have sinned. What's the easiest thing in the world for David to do? Arrange a little accident for Nathan, right? And you're saying, well, he wouldn't do that. Well, he just had Uriah murdered. Think about it. Think if you're Nathan. I want you to put yourself in this position at the moment and think of who are you in this story. I want you to pretend you're Nathan in this story. I don't know about you, but I'd just be a little bit nervous. You know, I would go in and I'd say, by the way, several people know that I'm here. I've made a video. I'm recording this. It's, it's on Facebook Live right now. So think about what you're doing before you do it. I mean, but think of the courage of Nathan. Nathan thinks he could easily kill him. And so Nathan shows this tremendous courage and character. Uriah the Hittite shows incredible courage and character. It's David in this story, the man of courage and character, that sin has literally robbed him. He's no longer the righteous man in this story. Well, what's he going to do? Is he going to kill Nathan? Is he going to deny it? Saul, when Saul sinned and Saul had this happen, Saul denied it. When he talked to Samuel, he said, it wasn't me. The men did it. You know, he always had an excuse. But here's what's different about David. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He just confesses and repents. Because a lot of times people are going to say to you, look, this David is a hero amongst the Israelites. He's called a man after God's own heart. The guy had sex with Bathsheba, tried to deceive her husband, then had him murdered. How in the world is this a man after God's own heart? Well, if you think that you need to be perfect to be a man after God's own heart, then there's no such thing, right? What's different between David and Saul? He's repentant. When confronted with his sin, he confesses it and he turns back to God. 
if you think about being a Christian in America today, one of the things that non-Christians will say to you is, you Christians are sinners too, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And you know, the way I like to say it is, Christ followers commit sins, but we're not committed to sin. In other words, we're walking a different road. Another way to say it is the way Augustine said it 1,600 years ago, is basically the Christian life is a life of repentance. Here's the difference. It's not that Christians behave better than non-Christians. That's not always the case, is it? It's not that non-Christians sin every time they walk out their front door. That's not the case either. Here's the difference. There are people who sin, and there are sinners, and there are repentant sinners. Those are two very different things. Very different things. And so if you say, well, everybody sins, well, technically that's true. I don't know anybody other than Jesus Christ who doesn't commit sin, but it's irrelevant. The point is not everybody repents of their sin. The thing with Jesus is if you sin without repenting, you sin without the confession, the repentance, the reliance on Jesus, you own your sins and you will die in them. If you repent, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If you are faithful to confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive your sins. We all sin, but we're not all sinners. Some of us are repentant. That's the difference between David and Saul. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians, not the fact that you're a better person than non-Christians. You may not be. My, I can guarantee you my neighbor has a not much nicer yard than I do. I think he's a nicer guy than I am. But the point is, the question is not how well do you behave. The question is, is your trust in Jesus Christ? And so you see this with David. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. This is you and me. This is every day when you pray to God and confess and repent, and God says, your sin is gone. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And that's what he says to us. You will eternally live. You will not die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. In other words, everybody looked at him and said, oh, your God's not much. Look at this king. He's supposedly a faithful guy. He said, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, went into his house, and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood behind, beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He wouldn't eat. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, while the child was alive, he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him he's dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. And he said, is the child dead? And they said, yes. Then David got up, washed, showered, shaved, put on his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. What does this remind you of, by the way? Have you read the book of Job? What's the first thing Job does when calamity strikes him? It says he bowed down and he worshiped, and he said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Always turning to God. Does he understand what happens? No, he does not understand what has happened but he turns to God, and that's what David is, and he went and he worshiped. And so at his request, they gave him food and served him, and his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, 
You mourned, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, perhaps the Lord will be gracious and let the child live. But now that he is dead, there's no point in fasting. I cannot bring him back again. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. This is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible to me. You get this idea of, it's not a fatalism. It's David really has a good understanding of God's sovereignty. And I think we too, not in this exact situation, but sometimes we pray earnestly for God to do something that we want. And the test, I think, of our faith sometimes is what happens when he says no. And do we worship? And do we say, he won't return to me, but I will see him again someday. And so that's David's response in this situation. So this is a troubling little story. If you haven't got any questions about this, you should have some questions about this. And I want to talk to you for a moment about the penalty of sin and the consequences of sin. I want to bring it to modern times. And so to, if you or I sin, we can be, the penalty for that sin is removed through faith in Christ. Jesus Christ will bear the penalty of that sin, meaning we will not die. Our sins are forgiven. We don't go to hell. We're still right with God because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin. But the consequences of our sin remain. There are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to doing good. There are consequences to doing bad. The penalty for sin is gone, but the consequences of that sin are not. And you know that. You say, well, that's experientially true. I'm glad that's what the Bible teaches, because if it didn't teach that, I'd have a hard time believing it, because that seems to be the case. We have a whole group of people at Joseph Harp Correctional Center who have done something wrong, okay? I don't want to necessarily over-spiritualize it, but let's just say, use them as a metaphor for us having sinned. And they are believers in Jesus Christ and absolutely free of any guilt of sin, any penalty of sin. You know, they're destined for heaven as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, they're still serving the consequences of that sin, just like you and I are. Sometimes the consequences of that sin are things we do to ourselves, uh, holding on to grudges, lacking forgiveness, uh, stinginess, anxiety. All these things are things that are consequences of our lack of faith, our lack of trust. But the penalty for that is gone when we repent. The things that are happening from now on, by the way, the rest of David's life stinks. Uh, a spoiler alert, sorry about that. But it's downhill. Why? Because you're going to see the sin in his life begin to spread. And David is going to show you some really strong faith, but David's also going to experience the consequences of sin in his life. And I think as we go through these next couple of lessons, I want to talk to you about the idea. I want you to get this out of your head, that if I'm suffering because of stupid things I did, that means God doesn't love me anymore. You're suffering because of stupid things that you did, because you did stupid things. It has nothing to do with whether you're forgiven and you're free in Jesus Christ. That's why the prisoner in the cell can be freer than the free man or woman walking around out here with their sin on their shoulders. Does that make sense? It's just, this is a powerful lesson. David is forgiven of the penalty for sin because he repented, he turned to God, threw himself on God's mercy, and God forgave him the sins. David will have to navigate the consequences of this sin through the rest of his life and what will follow on from this in the rest of his life.
Question? Are there any sins outside of the seven deadly sins, or is that God's way of saying that all unrepentant sin ends in ultimate death? Good question. Okay, the seven deadly sins is kind of a Catholic thing. So if you're not Catholic, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the idea of the seven deadly sins is kind of a Catholic thing. It's not necessarily a biblical thing. Here's what the Bible teaches about sin. I mean, they're bad sins. I'm not knocking that. But the idea is that sin is rebellion against God. The consequences of, of different sins are different. The consequences of some sins are worse than others. That makes sense, right? And the consequences of stealing maybe aren't as bad as the consequences of murdering Uriah, okay? Consequences can be very different, but the penalty, the guilt of sin is the same. It's all rebellion against God. Whether you take a bite out of an apple, that's an act of I want to be God, or you're David, I'm king, I can do whatever I want to do. It's the same thing. It carries the same penalty. So the question asked is a good one. Consequences differ, but the penalty is the same, and the offense is the same. Can we take a little detour back to your map slide? We can. Do I need to go back to the map slide? Okay. This is kind of unprecedented, but I'll do it for you. Do the Israelites inhabit only the gray area and not the green area? That is a good question. So the gray area is Saul's kingdom on this map. The green area is David's, I mean, at the end of his reign. Remember, I told you it took him 20 years to get to this point. And then Solomon adds just a little bit more. It's kind of irrelevant. No, Israelites aren't living everywhere here. They do live in some of them because they're Israelites. They can go there and live. I don't want to bring the Palestinians into this. So I need to think of another analogy. Um, I can't think of a good one. Bottom line is, yes, because they controlled that area, the Israelites could go there and live. They wouldn't get killed. They wouldn't get harmed by the Ammonites. But they didn't just, like, kick all the Ammonites out. So, yes, Israel controlled all this territory, even though there were Ammonites and Edomites and other people living there. They didn't kick them all out and take it over. So that's probably what the question was asking. Yes, yeah, so like where the Philistines live on the coast, would that have been um, more pagan communities as opposed to Jewish communities? Yes, great question. So where the Philistines are, Amalek, Edom, Moab, they're still worshiping their gods, but they are militarily, politically under the authority of Israel. And so you're going to find that as we now go through the era of the kings, I mean, David, Saul's first king, then David, and so we're going to go from David, think this, at this time we're probably, let's just call it 970 B.C., all the way down to 586 B.C., you're going to have a lot of kings, and they're constantly going to be wandering to serve the god of the Ammonites or to go serve the gods of the Edomites. And so they, David leaves those people, they still worship their gods, but militarily and politically, they are subjects of Israel. Good question. Okay. So let's go back to the psalm that David wrote after this happened. You can see in your Bibles, uh, usually you'll have a little thing that'll tell you sometimes who wrote the psalm and 
when it happened, and this is one you happen to know. Psalm 51, very famous. When the prophet Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And here's what he writes. You can see the repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, meaning I don't deserve this. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. This is a repentant person. This is not the non-apology apology, you know, that celebrities do. I regret very much that you felt bad about that. I express my regrets. You know, that's a non-apology apology. This is repentance, right? My sin is always before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David also understands that, yeah, he did wrong to Uriah. He did wrong to Bathsheba. I mean, she was basically nothing but a pawn in this game. I mean, David sinned a lot in this. He treated her like nothing. He commits adultery with her. He tries to deceive her husband. He has her husband murdered. I mean, David's done a lot of things that are wrong in this situation. But David understands, I've also sinned against you. Because what you do to your neighbor, you can't have a vertical good relationship with God without also that spreading out to your neighbor. When Jesus was asked, what are the two commandments that kind of sum up a lot of the law? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical and horizontal are tied together. He realizes, some people would say, you did wrong and you harmed these people. He said, I also know that I sinned against you. That's repentance. So he said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Uh, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Restore to me, verse 12, look at this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's talking about relational restoration. In the New Testament, a word that's used a lot is the word reconciliation. Jesus reconciled us to God. That's a very relational term. So not only is he forgiving our sins, but he's also restoring our relationship. That's what David desires. He said, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, saying, strengthen my spirit so that I will want to do what is right. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And so this is David's famous psalm. He has a lot of famous psalms, but this one is beautiful because you know when it happens, and it gives you an insight into his heart. All you know from the narrative is he said, I have sinned. And he confesses, and he repents. And he bears the consequences of his sin. But here you see the heart of repentance. This is a very Christian idea. This is when we talk about repenting from our sins, this is what we're talking about. The sorrowful nature of the breach in our relationship with God, the desire to restore that relationship with God. Well, time goes on. I'm going to end on a really sad note. I'm sorry, you're going to go home totally depressed. So, Because I want you to see how this just keeps rolling. So time goes on. Bathsheba, married to David, child dies. They have another child named Solomon. That's a story for another time. But David has a number of sons, and his oldest son is, a, is named Amnon. 
Amnon is going to be his heir. He's his oldest son by his first wife. Absalom is his third son. Second son's probably dead, so he's out of this picture. So Absalom is next in the line of succession. He's fathered by another wife. And, and Absalom has a sister named Tamar who's beautiful. Listen to this. <clears throat> Amnon almost literally acts out the sins of his father. In the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, one of David's other sons. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, really bad guy. He was uh, David's nephew. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. By the way, in the Bible, shrewdness is not a virtue. You know, shrewdness, cleverness is not a virtue in the Bible. It was to the Greeks. I mean, if you look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, they worshiped shrewdness. That's why Odysseus, Ulysses, was such a hero is because he was very shrewd. That's not, a, that's not a good thing in the Bible. And so he speaks to him and he said, why do you look so sad every morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said, go to bed and pretend to be sick. When your father comes to see you, say, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come, make some bread in my sight, and let her nurse me. David sent word to Tamar and said, go to the house of your brother Amnon, prepare some food for him. So she did. She took some dough, made the bread, baked it. Then she took it and served him, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out, he said, so everyone left. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I can eat it from your hand. Tamar took the bread and brought it to her brother. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of this disgrace? And what about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger, he raped her. So you see this idea of prosperity, privilege, power. Once again, the woman in this story is considered nothing more than something to fulfill his momentary desires. The story goes on, I've left this part out, but the story goes on that afterwards... It says she became despicable in his sight, and he sent her out and sent her home uh, just by herself, and he despised her, it said. When David found out about this, this exact same phrase as what it said about God in, in Hebrew, it's exact same phrase. Remember when it said, and the Lord was very displeased at the evil David had done. It says David was very displeased at the evil Amnon had done. So what does David do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so time passes. Two years pass. Absalom is furious. But he realizes there's really nothing he can do. And so two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there for a feast. And he went to the king and he said, uh, I'm having the harvest Will you and your officials please come join me? No, my son, the king replies, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Even though Absalom urged him, he refused to go. But he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom, 
crafty, asks what he really wants. He said, well, if you can't go, please let my brother Amnon come with us, the heir, the golden child. The king said, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. And Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking, and I say to you, kill him, then you kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Now be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what he ordered. Then all the king's sons got up and mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, a report came to David. Absalom has struck down all of your sons. Not one is left alive. And the king stood up and tore his clothes and began to grieve. But Jonadab, the shrewd little fellow who started all this mess, said, my lord should not think they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned that all of your sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Absalom fled the country. Now think about what's happening here. You remember when God said the sword will never leave your house and see what's happening? Amnon is emulating his father. He's a spoiled kid. David isn't disciplining him. David didn't discipline Joab. David is not following through. He's displeased, but he won't act. And so Amnon gets away with this rape of his half-sister Tamar. Absalom is furious, and he bides his time. The justice of Absalom is not swift, but it is sure. Well, now that Amnon is dead, Absalom is the heir. And, of course, he flees. Absalom is the grandson of a king. So I'm going to tell you where he goes. So he leaves Jerusalem. Actually, they're a little north of there. But there is a kingdom right here, right east of the Galilee, and it is called Geshur. And Absalom's mother was a princess of Geshur, and Absalom's grandfather is the king of Geshur. And so he goes back to his mother's people where he's royalty, and he stays in Geshur. And David is left with his heir dead, knowing that he's receiving the consequences of his own sin, his own failure to do what is right. And now the heir to his throne is living in his grandfather's kingdom. And it's as though David's whole world has just come tumbling down. And that's kind of where I'd like to leave this lesson for, you know, for a week is I want you to suffer a little bit with David. But the story heats up a little bit because Absalom isn't done. He's not just mad at Amnon. He wants revenge on David for not doing what's right. Amnon comes with an army, and David has to flee. Next time, we'll talk about how God navigates through this and how David probably rises to his most noble in the time of his greatest distress. I'll see you guys next time.